Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. We'll use a process of mutual invitation for this. So Dai, I'll ask you the question first. And once you've introduced yourself and spoken to that question, you can ask whoever you like to speak next. Our question for today is, when has hearing or telling a story made a great deal of difference in your life? Dai McCullough, when has hearing or telling a story made a great deal of difference in your life? Hi, all. Um, I am... I'm going to tell you who I am, and then I'm going to tell you the story answer. I am a layperson. I belong to St. John's in Worthington, um, and I have a lot of weird pastoral training, but I am not clergy. Um, I just told you that I belong to St. John's in Worthington, and a time that a, hearing a story made a really big difference to me was when I first started worshiping there, the very first member of the congregation that I met with one-on-one started that meeting by telling me her story of what the church had meant to her growing up, why she had left for a while and what her experience of coming back was Hmm. and her courage in truthfulness. I was a stranger to her just like she was to me was part of how I knew that that was a wonderful place to be, that that community was a place where people told the truth to the best of their ability um, and took risks with that. And part of her story was about how loving the community had been to her in what was a really scary time. Um, And her courage in telling that story made it an okay place for me to be too. So I was really grateful for that. How about you, Jason? Which stories have been meaningful to you? One of the places that, so I'm, I'm actually in two spots, but in two churches that I'm working with kind of halftime. And at St. Barnabas, I helped uh, form the Becoming Beloved Community Committee. And um, I would say that within that committee, when we started to tell stories um, about our backgrounds and using story sharing to get to know each other, um, was very, very powerful. But then there was this one person who, who told the story of how the community that they had grown up in, um, in Cincinnati, that that community had been um, uh, destroyed, probably a bad word, highly altered, um, because back in the 50s, when the, um, the U.S. was building major interstate highways, they put that highway right through their community. And so it just completely altered that community and broke it up. And, um, and that story was very powerful for me because it helped me understand some of the systemic racism that was kind of in our country um, and how it affected, you know, or how transportation and just even how interstates are connected to racism. That was just really interesting to me. Um, not more than interesting. It was, it was just a very difficult story, a very powerful, very difficult one. Um, and then as we continued to hear these stories and we actually would watch some documentaries, um, telling kind of the story of racism within America, it was just eye opening and revealing in ways that I just, I never seen our society, but, um, I think one of those powerful things that I did was, so I was researching the story of a parish and I'm not going to name it. I'm not really going to say where I, what diocese it's in, but I was reading its story. And um, at one point in the story, it said that they left a community and moved to another community. And it was a community that I know now it is a predominantly black community, African-American community. And the community they moved to is a predominantly white community. And I never, I don't think I ever, I mean, as a white male, I just would never have before hearing those stories before from the people in that, on that committee for hearing in those documentaries, I never would have suspected that racism would have been involved in why a church moved from one place to the other. 
but it was like, because I heard those stories, it, it changed the way I even listen to a story and, and how I interpret events within the kind of micro events within that story. So that's probably the most powerful, I would say, and that's just recently, I and mean, that's just within that last two years. So Carl, I'll ask you. Sure. Well, I, I think most of you know um, that my daughter Ella had cancer um, when she was uh, about 15 months old. She was diagnosed with a neuroblastoma, a tumor in her chest. And we were very lucky. It was found early and she never had to have chemo. She never had to have radiation therapy. It was removed just through surgery. Um, but it was about an eight-week period that was one of the most harrowing and terrible of my life, as you can imagine, um, as we you know, had to go up to Cleveland to Rainbow ba uh, Babies Hospital there, be there with her throughout her surgery and her recovery, be exiled from our home. And this was all over um, the holidays, too. So the surgery, I think, took place on January 2nd, or we went into the hospital on January 2nd. And I was ordained during that time. So I got to travel down to Gambier for my ordination, leaving my wife and my child at, at the hospital there in a state of almost mindless exhaustion. I, I really have no memory of my ordination at all. Um, but once it was all over, there was a, a May day like today, and um, we were living on campus up in Gambier on the campus of Kenyon College. And Amy and Ella came back from being out on campus and Amy showed me a video she had taken of Ella just running around, you know, toddling around this little, um, at that point, 17 month old. And um, just said, I, th I think, I think we're over it. I think we're through it. I think the, the trauma is past. Um, so it wasn't something, you know, them not being out there that day was not something I got to participate in, but seeing the video and going back to that video over the years and um, just having the reassurance from Amy that it was over was, uh, I don't know, a, a relieving and somewhat transforming story to hear from her. So Emmanuel, we are going to go way into your story. So do you mind before I ask you the question, if I introduce you and, and introduce the topic today? Sure. Okay. Uh, so our topic today is storytelling, and we are joined um, by our friend Emmanuel Tuyashimi. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yes, you got that right, yes. All right. Um, and Emmanuel has, has long been a, a friend of Jane's who cannot join us today um, and has more recently become a friend of mine and of Jason's. Um, and the whole, the whole impetus for this particular episode is that Emmanuel, after Easter, I called you um, just to see how you were, just to chat. And, you know, you told me that it was, it had been the third Easter when you weren't in your church, because the other two, when you weren't in church on an Easter, the other two times were during the Rwandan genocide and just after. And um, one, your story was so moving to me, and really put everything in perspective in a way that I was deeply grateful for, while also deeply saddened by at the same time. Um, but I also remember asking you, well, how did, how did a church that had gone through that reconstitute itself? How did it come back together? And your answer was storytelling, testimony. When we met, we told the story of what had happened. So I will ask you our question for the day, but then I, I, I hope you'll share um, the broader story of what happened in Rwanda and your own personal experience of it with the four of us and with our listeners. So Emmanuel, when has hearing or telling a story made a great deal of difference in your life? Hmm. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, you said my name. Nice to meet you, Dai, and nice to see you again, brothers. And um, uh, stories are always uh, um, impacting my life in many ways. And uh, as a Christian, we've been reading the stories from the Bible, Daniel's in Daniel's den, the story of uh, 
Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, story of Stephen, Abednego's You know, we know that the Bible has been written in the perspective of culture, you know, but when we want to understand it really good, we do application to our our contemporary context, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the Bible has been written once, but if you have to, if it has to be written again, I'm sure that the portion of Rwandan story will just have a small portion there, or your story, or other people's story, you know. But it's, we make it more meaningful when I see what the Bible says and try to connect with my context and see where I see God in this. So, uh, as, as you all know, Rwandan has gone to a genocide, something that has in, never been explained why it happened, where people been wondering why it was God. And I was struggling with that question, where was God? At the same time, I had an answer. Where was God when his son was crucified? Mm. So, God is always there, and he uses oral history, oral circumstances sometimes to change us. God is not always changing the situation. Sometimes he lets the situation to change us. There's always something going on with God and his people. So if I go briefly to the history of Rwanda, it's going to be only in one hour thing like this. I'm sure you have seen the Hotel Rwanda, the movie Hotel Rwanda. Things that happen in three months cannot be squeezed in one movie for one hour. No, whatever happened in that movie is like a drop in the ocean. So if you take every Rwandan and you sit with the person, tell their story, you will write the books and the books. Some stories are different from others. Some stories are unique. Some stories are political motivated, depending on government interest. And uh, some are genuine, some are not. You know, it depends who is telling the story. Also, the story of Rwanda has been manipulated depending on the media. You know, sometimes it's according to the common knowledge. Whoever write the book is the winner. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I personally experienced um, the one just that happened in Rwanda. I was 18, so I was a big boy to understand some of what was going on. Some still mystery to me, mm-hmm. simply because Rwandan genocide is not uh, that the people were, you know, before genocide we claim that Rwandan. 90%, over 90% were Christian. So pretty much it was Christian killing other Christian. Muslim are 1%. And so what does it mean to me that a Christian is killing other Christian? Is it because some people, they think that being named Emmanuel or Stephen or John or Matthew, that's enough. You know, they were given names, Christian names, they thought that was enough, you know. So being a Christian is to live with Christian in your life, in your mind, in, the, in your action. You know, some people involved in the killing while they were Christian. Some people, they did not at all because they were committed to what they believed. So uh, I was born in an Episcopal church. I have been in an Episcopal church over four decades. And uh, I was born when my father was a pastor. And I know what it means to be in the church when there's a violence, when the church is powerless, when the church cannot um, stop what is going on, when the church is dominated by ideology, when the church is completely powerless to act the way it should act, you know. So that's what happened in Rwanda. And... uh, some people, they thought that the church was going to be secure places because it was, you know, it's a sacred place where people, they kind of dare to kill people. Then the churches became killing ground. People, they sought refugees in the churches. They thought, okay, we are, we are safe. Nobody will come to destroy churches. Now it's time just to relax. Unfortunately, 
The killers invented the churches. They killed people in churches. They threw grenades. They, you know, so that was not. Uh, and I'm talking about this genocide. It was not something that came from the sky. It's something that been trained with hatred. Hatred, you know, people been hating each other for long time. It's been looting from the history. Uh, some people are cast off the power. When they get to the power, they want to share the power with the others. You know, it's these two people, Tutsis and Hutus, could now want to share powers for a long time. So this has been always raising anger and the tension among the Rwandans. So uh, what is interesting is that these people from Rwanda speak one language in common. They, we share the same culture. So you can't tell who is this and who is that until somebody disclosed to tell you, I'm so and so and I'm this and this. Sometimes somebody does not exactly what's going on in the tribes. You know, some, like, some Christian families, they never feel comfortable to share those with the children. As an example, my father never said something like that to us. You know, uh, uh, my father was a pastor when I was born, so we, I grew up in the mission field. So that was pretty much good, safe environment where we always just be involved in the church stuff, not political issues. But uh, I remember when I was 18, I was not able to identify my tribes. I was not. I was not able to tell who I was. At school, they ask us, "What is your tribe?" Today, I will say I'm a Tutsi, depending of my my friends I have that day. Next week, when they ask us to stand, Tutsis stand up. I was standing there. Next week, they ask who to, to stand. I was standing there because I couldn't figure out. You know, it's hard. It was hard. Yeah, it was hard. Even some, you know, intermarriage. Intermarriage was something that. It, played another key rule to not people not people to able able to understand it because the people mix their blood, you know? Mm-hmm. Some people have been just moving, you know, if you live in the north part of the country, the life is seem now moving, you move to south, you search over there, you make your friends over there, then you take any tribe you want. You know, people they even never know because sometimes people to know who you are is they know your dad, they know your grandfather, you know, they just go through the you know ancestry. But sometimes people been moving around. So something I'm sorry. So something that, that wasn't important prior to the genocide to you at all, tribe, suddenly became all important. In a in a matter of life and death, really. So, mm-hmm. so does that mean? I mean, I'm just trying to imagine you, Emmanuel, at 18. You know, Christian friends from all over the place. Suddenly, the thing starts happening. I mean, how how did you conceive of the story of yourself? Like, who did who did you think of yourself as being at that moment when all of that had had been taken away. So I find myself with two people in one. The way I saw life before I was before I was eighteen and after. The way life is to me is you know, of course life was no longer the same after I lost like it over time people in my family, those who've been gathering when you have something going on in our family, when you have like baptism, when you have like any family function, those people I've been seeing around, I never saw them anymore. So yeah. some they've been killed, some even they, they what make it very hard is because there were some people they have right to remember their beloved one who died, some they don't because of the government interest. You know, they don't want to, some they cover up, you know, they don't want to say. But as I said, I was, I was always struggling. Where was God? Yeah. You know, I grew up in the church. I was born in the church. I've been very active in the choir, in the Sunday school. And then I see some people who are in my um Sunday school, got kids, some the the family just scattered everywhere. They were nowhere about. So then I was wondering, where was God? Why did God let this to happen? That's why I was telling you that uh, something came to me. God was 
where was God when his son was crucified? Yeah. He was there and he was there. So sometimes we don't see God in the midst of our tribulation, but God is there. It's the same thing as when we read the story of Jesus and his disciples and the ocean when they got storm, you know. At least they knew where Jesus was that particular time. Jesus was sleeping in his tent. They knew where he was. He was with them physically. But mm-hmm. during the genocide of Rwanda, pretty much Jesus was not to be found physically. You, you, you see the neighbors who you thought they, are, they were good friends, they have machetes. Yeah. They have guns. Those of you think that you've been in a very good relationship with their, your buddies, that the ones who turn your enemies. So you don't see Jesus on all kind of, you know, stuff, you know. But story sharing played a big role when people been saying how they survived. They say, I have seen God in this. I have seen God in this. When they say, I have seen God in this, that created another space for you to, 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 to bring God in your life. When you, they, they, they came to you, they say, how did you survive? Then they say, oh, that's God. You know, you see, you know, you see that God has been doing something to you. You know, then people start coming back to churches. You know, it was not that quick because people had had, had, had no hope for churches because of what happened in the churches, you know. And they might have been meeting in their homes, you know. But uh, some people, they lost the hope completely. They did not come back to church until even now. Mm-hmm. Some of them became available completely. So especially there's like a, a family of 90 people who got killed. Only one person just survived. It's going to be hard. You don't even know how to help that person. You know, there's a lot of trauma. There's too much going on in their life. You know, people just have nightmares. It's before they, you know, the trust is now really coming back as, you know, even the reconciliation is not the way it should be because, as I said, the political motivation, you know, you know, dictators always, they don't want people to come together because when they come together, they find out why we fought, why we've been fighting. And when the dictators want to rule forever, they make you divided. They, don't, they, don't, they will never let you come back together because they will find out why. Yeah. And the why in Rwanda is very simple because people say, okay, we speak the same language. We have the same culture. You know, we've been having intermarriage. You know, my cousins, we don't have the same tribe. You know? Yeah. And, you know, so that's why I'm saying it. Sharing the stories played a big role because people have been having time, even in our, even right now in our services, we have time for enjoying the concern. We have people we experience where they have seen God. So all this kind of stuff have been helping to bring life back and helping us to continue to trust God. Even the wounds are still there, but been people who really people who really just hear that fast, they will just hear others for to hear. Right. Hey, Emmanuel, I wanted to ask you, because that statement that story sharing is essential for survival, that, that really resonated with me. Um, and I think about your story about coming to the U.S. and what you had to do to survive. And I think about all the things that... Um, more than really the suffering and that you had to go through, but I mean, just that's really a story of survival and really, and really and beyond that and how you, it's really a success story in so many ways. Um, is there something about, or how did like that idea and maybe it didn't, but can, because maybe it's a different context, but is there a time where story sharing was essential for your survival and for your success? Um, as you came to the U.S. and and and, and survived through that ordeal, Can you think of a time like that. I mean, is there a situation where story sharing or hearing somebody else's story gave you hope and gave you strength and courage? Or yeah, um, some people who have gone similar things as I gone through, or have gone in harsh situation than mine, being helping me to see clarity again 
Mm-hmm. Because sometimes when you focus on yourself, you think things are really tough for you. And another thing I learned is that to feel pain for others. Some people pain helped me to see God again because I have seen some people who suffered more than I can tell. Those people been really helpful to me, and I have seen how they've been struggling. I've seen how they've been just moving. It's just like a baby who was born is just crying on the floor, and then it's at the same time after some time he'll just grab something. And then somebody will walk, you know. That's the same as I can describe the situation from the people. There's a time we are all on the floor, crawling down. There's a time some people will just get some strength to stand up on something. There's some people will be walking. So we learn from all these steps, you know. Some steps are shorter. Some steps are just take a long time. You know, some process I mean. So by sharing with other people been impacting me. I cannot tell you who is in the visit because many people have been just impacting me in a very special way, especially when you are curious to know how this person is coping with what happened to him or to her. It been it been it been actually a therapy. I can say that it was a therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one that required it sounds the whole community in order, you know, I mean, you need examples like who has, who has gotten to the place where I want to be. Oh, I can point to that person and therefore I can know that it's possible, you know, but I also know that if I'm weak, other people are going to take care of me. It it sounds Emmanuel, like what you're describing is um, these stories reconfiguring a community that um, all of these powers of evil, frankly, had attempted to destroy. Is, is that an accurate way to talk about it? Like the fellowship, um, my wife and my sister planted here in Dayton. When we started, it was just one tribe, one tribe but right now we are 50-50. Huh. Yeah, it's not political motivated, but you know, in Rwanda, whatever they say, like reconciliation is happening right now, there might be some sort of, some hand of government trying to show this and this, but here in America, we have tried just to have a fellowship where we have now 50-50 for those who have been having issues back in back home. Now we are gathering together every Sunday, worshiping together. That's one of something I can say shaped in my life too. So to see churches and hotels worshiping together and having meals together and visiting one another together, it's been something that I can say uh, is a therapy by itself. It's a therapy. Emmanuel, uh, one of the things that I was noticing when you were talking about telling your story and the healing that came through that was that some of the most powerful storytelling and story hearing happened between people who went through similar experiences. And I imagine that after you came to the United States, you found yourself sharing your story with people who had very little conception of what you'd gone through. And I wonder what the differences between those two kinds of hearers has been for you and what the best ways to receive stories well that you uh, found has yes, been. Yes, I got the question. So um, sharing a story is one thing and being heard or being listened is another thing. So I am glad to have a very good example I can use right now. Like Jane, when we met, I shared my story, and she was a very good listener. Mm-hmm. And you can tell if somebody is listening. You can tell. And if somebody is, will try even to meet you in halfway because of the language barrier, you can see somebody is trying all her best to just get what you're trying to say. And after that, you can see emotion. You can see how somebody just opened their arms to just, you know, you can see the spirit is moving to that person. But, it, you know, somebody has to be a good listener and being compassionate. So since then, Jen has been my best, best friend and has been the family friend. And she helped me to move from where I was just wandering around to where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I was in exile. I was just becoming an asylee. And she walked, she walked with me hand by hand from day one until today. Yeah. She helped me just to be where I am as a priest right now. So, And even if she's, even if she's not here in the meeting, she's right there. Mm-hmm. 
Mr. Thank Emmanuel, you. Emmanuel, why do you do a picture of Jade on his desk behind him? <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful example. Thank you. So I, um, if it's okay, I'd like to move to some some broader questions for us to consider, particularly in terms of your experience, Emmanuel, and um, and what we're experiencing now as a church in a world. Um, so the first thing I was thinking about, and I, I was thinking about this after you and I talked after Easter, um, about how our worship com- communities can use stories as we begin to come out of this pandemic, or maybe we're not coming out of this pandemic, it's hard to tell, but as we live through and weather this pandemic, um, how, how we're going to use stories about what happened, what we saw, what we felt, um, and then also this question of, do we really use stories now in the Episcopal Church in any kind of wide way beyond this, the stories of scripture? And is, is that going to change? So as, as all of you think about your worshiping communities, how, how have you used stories? And do you think that that will transform, that that will become broader as we begin to, to shift out of this time period? So, you know, working with Becoming Beloved Community, the story sharing campaign is a big, like a tool um, in like the toolkit as far as helping people who come together, who are from, come from diverse backgrounds and maybe diverse uh, political ideologies for them to connect through sharing their story and just kind of connecting um, through their common humanity. Um, I know that one of the documentaries in the Sacred Ground series that was really powerful to me was how, that I, I was just really surprised by and really impressed with was how the, the leader of the Tea Party and the person from Texas and the person from, who started MoveOn.org from Berkeley came together and became friends um, or friendly because, because they came together and shared their stories and they connected through their common humanity. And I, for me, that, really, that um, displayed the power of story and the importance of, of, really, of story sharing. And I know that before the pandemic, I was going to take a group to Israel and really try to apply some of these methods that I learned in becoming beloved community to you know, how, how can we see um, some of the conflict that's going on in the Holy land and learn, you know, see that and look at that and then, and look at how story sharing actually helps us to understand the emotions underneath and, uh, you know, all of that, just the, the more richer complex aspects to it than just kind of the, the, I think the political one that we get. And, and then, for me, it was like that was going to be the method, and I, and I, I really, I was really excited to see how it worked, and I was really bummed that this uh, virus uh, stopped us from doing that. But it's something that I, I mean, I mean, once this once this eventually passes, uh, you know, um, I'm going to keep trying to do that. So for me, and it's like this story sharing is really an important thing that I haven't really experienced a lot in the Episcopal Church, but. That's just my, but that's just my experience. But I think it's something that's really starting to catch on and it's starting to be embraced. So that's, so that's inspiring and encouraging to me. I would say that uh, the church, of course, maybe not at this, may not be, it's going to take a little while. It may not just be, the life be not the same, you know, after even if they reopen the churches, it's something we just you slow down if we don't we don't have to have a holy communion as we used to have and we're not going, we're going to have like a social distancing but they not to be on the same pure like if they used to hug one another uh but we need just to learn from other stuff that shook the world you know this is not this is not unique things the world has gone through this before so you know and we see also how people been coming out of uh, disaster you can see what happened in Haiti when they had the earthquake the life came back after a little while so but uh, that I'm saying when it, something 
when something is natural, the process of healing or getting where we want to go is not the same as when there's a killing. Yeah. Killing involves reconciliation, forgiving, restoration, things like that one. But like the earthquake and the pandemic is just the habitation. That's it. Then we just go back to the normal life. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can, I mean, I totally understand that and see that. Um, I, I don't know if there is, is there reconciliation needed at this time here and now, or is that um, something that, that we won't need because, because it's not the same in any way as Rwanda? Uh, I, I almost feel like people are reacting differently now, like we're breaking into political camps over how we respond to COVID. And I know I feel within myself a lot of blame and criticism of other people um, on a pretty regular basis. So nowhere, nothing, nothing even coming close, Emmanuel, to to the reconciliation that had to happen in your community. But um, but some touch of that that self criticism that says, why am I blaming or condemning this person who is not wearing a mask at the grocery store? Um, where, what is the root of my anger? What brokenness is it speaking out of? How do I address that? You know, I, I feel like there, there is some room, um, for forgiveness, but tell me about, I mean, I, I, I might be making a totally false equivalency, so please feel free to set me straight. Yeah. My point was that like, uh, when like a disaster or something like pandemic, the only thing that we take is just courage to boost the economy, to do rehabilitation, mm-hmm. to check one another. But when like a human being is involved to just uh, kill somebody else, the process will take longer than yeah. usual because yeah. it has a bunch of steps that mm-hmm. have to be moved, like the conciliation. Like somebody do also something that we call um, uh, revenge. Yeah. Revenge is another step that will take place, especially uh, when there's you no know, people who stand in between the people being fighting. So you no know, people with revenge, when they're gone, they will just go to the do the conciliation and try to understand why that happened. But you know, it's different scenarios, it's different stories. But this pandemic, when it's gone, I'm sure that life is now to be the same as it was before. But it will just uh, we we go through it. We go through it. Yeah. Something that I'm thinking a lot about is the way the stories that people tell themselves and their communities affect the decision making right now. Mm. I think that people are um, framing the situation very differently, even people within the same circumstances, and so. I'm looking at stories not just as how not just as how they move us forward and they heal us, but how they got us to this point um, in how we recover. And, and I'm, I'm thinking a lot, actually, I, I was listening to some of my friends who are pastors on Facebook talking about pressure that they're getting about reopening and how to reopen um, and the grief that people are feeling around not being back to normal. I think things have unfolded very differently than people anticipated for so many people. um, There was a sense that there was going to be a two or three week stay at home order. And immediately after that, it would be as though nothing had happened, which is obviously at this point, not what we're experiencing. Um, And it's hard to adjust without, it's hard to adjust when your narrative keeps shifting. Um, and so I think that you all who are in leadership of congregations, reframing the story fluidly and quickly and in a way that points us to hope is a, seems to be a big part of your job right now. Well, and I, that leads me to something that I've long thought about stories, which is that they're good, but they're dangerous. Um, that we can get caught into like a, a problem story about ourselves, which is certainly simply not true. Um, 
but we keep telling it to ourselves anyway. Uh, so that part is dangerous. But also, I mean, Emmanuel, in, your, in the story you told, you know, there were people trying to push a narrative of hatred, which other people were listening to. So there's a dangerous story. And, you know, as you point out, Di, like there are different narratives going on about about our plight right now, and some of them are dangerous. And I think that's why, I mean, liturgically, if we're talking about worship, I think we as, as American Episcopalians have a certain uh, worry or concern about storytelling in the midst of worship. You know, like I, as a priest, many times I've had other priests say to me, you know, in funerals, if you invite people to speak about the dead during a funeral, make sure you go last so that you can correct any heresy that was said. And I've always thought, well, that's, that's a load of BS. I don't care. You know, <laughs> like I'm not that concerned about orthodoxy that I need to, to do that, you know, to correct people as they're grieving. But at the same time, I think it speaks to that deep concern we have that if, if a non-authorized person or a person who doesn't know enough or have a deep enough understanding of the faith gets up to tell their story, um, the meaning they make out of it might be not Christian enough or false in some way or need to be corrected in some way that's embarrassing in the context of a community moment of storytelling. And so we, we just tend to avoid storytelling in a very kind of frozen and polite way as if it is impolite to talk about at dinner like politics, you know? Um, I, is that, have you, the rest of you experienced that as well or is that just an oversensitivity on my part? I'm sure everybody see that should be uh, very important to include in the services, but the only thing I, they may have as a concern is time management because probably many people want to raise their hands to speak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true of like when you're doing work in a circle and you have like a question to go around. If you ask people something that they can speak to pretty quickly, fine. But if you ask people to tell a story, you're going to be there for like two hours as everybody <laughs> likes take your time to tell a story. Yeah. Um, that's, well, what that's what's happening in Rwanda. We, we don't have a one hour service. It's always two hours. <laughs> <laughs> was that was that also true before the genocide though? Or is that... Joint yeah, um, concern is a part of our service. We cannot just go without it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so always testimony is always part of it. Sharing story is always part of it. Because actually, testimony is a, plays a big role to increase somebody's faith. Whatever I'm facing today may, when I get to you, may increase your faith that you can encounter God in a very special way. Yeah. 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 And I was raised in a non denominational charismatic community, and testimony was like the thing that always had to be a part of the liturgy you know and it was really powerful in a lot of ways i mean sometimes it was a little quirky and a little confusing but a lot of times it was very inspiring yeah so people would just stand up at like that there was a time reserved in the service and people would stand up and just say here is my story um you know i think sometimes it would take place during the sermon or maybe right before maybe like or they tell the story like, or they, you know, you know, the, you know, the offering that, you know, in a non-denominational church, they don't have pledging. So the weekly um, collection is really, really important. And so a lot of people would tell their story about, you know, how they started giving, you know, kind of like we do like for a month in sep- you know, in like September and October mm-hmm. with the pledge drive, people would come and go and they tell their story about how they, start to pledge and all that kind of stuff or their story about coming to the church and that would happen more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Emmanuel, how, like in Rwanda, how does testimony time work? Is it what Jason is describing like around the sermon time or what happens? That that would be for sermon, you know? Okay. Mm -hmm. And as I'm planting a new Episcopal church, that would be having a, portion to in the service you know it's something that we want to include yeah okay and do you have a sense of where in the service you'll put it i uh, since you timing here in america is uh, so important probably we just do it right after someone 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so story time takes time. Um, are are I, any of you concerned about the meaning-making people do with their own stories? You know, that um, somehow the meaning will be false. Like, I could stand up and tell a story, right? And I could say... Um, this is my story of COVID-19. I learned that there are a lot of jerks in the world who don't care about the health of others and therefore wander around, you know, doing aerosol breaths all over people and don't care who died. Right. I could say that, um, that would only be half the story and I wouldn't want to make the meaning of it that like humankind is evil and terrible, uh, but we're better than them so they can go, you know, jump in a lake like that. That would be to me a pretty bad meaning making, but people will do it. People need to make meaning out of the stories they tell. So how do we, how do we help with that? How do we guide that? Or do we? I think what one of the mitigating things to me is if we're each speaking to our own experience, if we're not speaking in a prescriptive way, that makes a tremendous difference. Mm. If, if we invite everyone in our community to talk about how they personally are experiencing or seeing God, it may very well be different from our understanding of God, but there's a lot more room to move within that than there is when we allow and I'm saying this to people who preach on a regular basis, when we allow one person to make meaning for all the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is part of the challenge of how we yeah. do stories now is we have authoritative voices who get to say the story and make the meaning and essentially no other voices. Yeah. Uh, how we can change that in terms of liturgy, I'm not entirely certain, but it is a, it's a hope. Well, I, you know, and I mean, in that story sharing campaign, I mean, there was, they explained the nuance between storytelling and story sharing, um, where storytelling is kind of, there's a part of it, I mean, it's a very subtle nuance, and it's very fine line, but I mean, storytelling could be very manipulative, or it, it, there's not that sense of um, authenticity, where story sharing can be much more about, I think inherently more if you have that, if your intent is to really just share your story, there's something more authentic about it. And I mean, you can always tell a story with an intent to drive a point home. Um, but I mean, right. As somebody who, you know, part of my job is to get up and, and preach and, you know, interpret the text through my lens. I'm, it's really, I'm, I'm really, and then a lot of times I, what I try to do is I just try to tell it through my own stories. So, you know, and, or to share it through my own stories and to say, this is just, this is how I see it. And, but I'm a big proponent for in the future. I mean, as I kind of get more into leadership, um, it's to bringing multiple different voices up. I mean, and especially, you know, honestly coming from I'm, the Bishop, when I was ordained, the Bishop um, commissioned me to, to bring together the Episcopal and charismatic communities together. Um, and it's in, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't gone to a charismatic church in a long time. I mean, over 20 years, but I mean, there's still part of my heart that's there. And, and when I was doing clinical pastoral education, I met um, quite a few that, so I was a chaplain in the hospital and so many times as the chaplain, I would meet with the pastor of the person that I was working with. And the pastor would be an African-American woman who was the pastor of, of this small charismatic church. And we always connected because, I mean, I, I, I know that community. And, and I, just, I, I got all these business cards and I just plan in the future for, to bring them in and to like, you know, like for us to, to share stories and for us to connect through um you know story sharing and things like that so that's i know that's a you know i'm excited about the idea of that in the future i was about to say our culture our culture can be cultivated mm -hmm. the culture sometimes, of storytelling can be cultivated in our church yes mm -hmm. sometimes we say we're episcopalians then we put the 
that's it. You have to and say, no, a prescriber can just move forward. You can just have some other stuff in our service. You can just, you know, <laughs> you know it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like in Episcopal Church, they'll say, hallelujah, amen. Who said we can't do that? No. Who so? <laughs> you know? so imagine when we reopen, we go to sanctuary, we worship, we go home without Holy Communion. That's not Episcopal Church. But, you know, depending on the situation where we are, we are going to do so. So any culture can be cultivated. If we say, okay, from now onward, you are going to share a story. We take advantage of the first week. I'm sure the first week when people get together, the conversation will be the quarantine life. How, how, I, how I have been in quarantine, how I've been just doing the home workout, how I've been just trying to cook, how I've been trying to do this and this. I've been spending time just renovating my house. You know, that the first week people will be, will be sharing months in the quarantine. So we will take advantage of that. Then we ask people, where have you seen God? Not only in the home workout, where have you seen God in this quarantine? Then, you know, mm-hmm. I, I know culture is a culture, but when you just say, you know what you want, you can just take advantage of many things to include what you want. And, and I think you're pointing out that the question is really important, right? Like if you are asking people to share a story, the way you pose a question that will elicit the story is so important. Like, where have you seen God in this quarantine? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us today. And Jason and I, as always, thank you. And, and to all of you listening, thank you for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Wanting. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. Our special guest today was Emmanuel Tuyashimi. Uh, we'll be back next week. Now, this week we were going to talk about ancient practices, but um, that had to get re- out on the twenty-sixth. Yeah, so um, so I'm not quite sure what our topic will be for next week. It'll be one of our our three remaining topics. This much I can promise you. All right, thank you all. <laughs>